Good morning, church. Well, today is um, April the 1st. April Fool's Day, the Warriors are 4-0, and that's no joke. They actually are 4-0. And today in history um, has been a day of practical jokes, of pranks. And it originated, I'm told, from the uh, change of calendar, from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And in previous times, the new year was celebrated on April the 1st. And when the calendar changed, of course, New Year's celebrated on January the 1st. But there were still people that celebrated um, New Year's on April the 1st. And so they became known as April Fools. And that's the origins, some will tell you, of uh, April Fool's Day. Today is a much more significant day than that. It happens to be April the 1st, but it's also Resurrection Sunday. It's a day of Passover that's being celebrated in Israel today. Uh, And those two things are are extremely significant to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Unlike previous times when people would just have practical jokes, we have the opportunity to give this day some real significance I was reminded of a couple of um, pranks that are now world famous, of course. There was the spaghetti tree in England where they took photos of people hanging spaghetti on a tree, supposedly picking it off. And a radio commentator uh, went on BBC and said that, you know, this is the new phenomenon. It's a spaghetti tree. And if you just take some spaghetti and plant it and water it with tomato sauce, you will have a spaghetti tree. And while we laugh at that, uh, hundreds of people rung in and said, yes, I've planted my tree. How long does it take? You know, what do I need to do next? And then, of course, there was our good friend Dick Smith just over the, over the water, the same Dick Smith of uh, Electrical Stores fame. And Dick Smith, who was a Sydney-based millionaire, uh, went on the radio and on television and said that he was floating an iceberg from Antarctica to Sydney with the aim of selling ice cubes from it to raise money for charity. And on this particular morning, uh, this rather large iceberg appeared at the entrance to Sydney Harbour and began to float up on a barge. And thousands upon thousands of Sydney-siders took every advantage of every point they could get to see this amazing feat. And then it began to rain. Now, had that been a real iceberg, that would have been bad enough. But the fact is that as the shaving foam began to melt and as the plastic sheeting and timber underneath were exposed, people realized that they had actually been April Fool's. And that probably is, apart from his electrical stores, Dick Smith's greatest claim to fame, I've got to say. Thousands upon thousands of Sydney-siders believing his practical joke. Well, this year, April 1st, as I said earlier, has huge significance. It celebrates the day that Jesus rose from the dead, when he defeated death, when he overcame the grave, and most importantly for you and I, he guaranteed our eternal salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As we come together today, Lord, we just pray that our minds are open, our hearts receptive, Lord, 
that this word that goes forth, as you say in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I watched the TV debate recently on Shine, and the debate was about what is the most significant day in the Christian calendar. And they had three up um, as the offerings. The first one, of course, was, was Christmas, the birth of Christ. The second was Good Friday, the death of Christ. And the third was Easter Sunday, the resurrection. And the significance of each one was accepted. Uh, it was also accepted that they were inextricably linked, i.e. if Jesus hadn't been born, he couldn't have died. If he hadn't have died, he couldn't have risen. And so those things were taken for granted. And then the debate began. And it began about which was the most significant day to us as Christians. And it's a challenging question if you, if you begin to think about it. I came to the conclusion that it's actually today, Easter Sunday. And I'm not going to tell you why I arrived at that. I'm going to let you think about it. But what I am going to tell you and encourage you to do is to see where you get to when you think about that question, because it's extremely challenging. And when Pastor Paul um, rung me about this morning, he said, um, you know, it's, it's April Fool's Day. What he neglected to tell me was it was Easter Sunday. And so I began to pray into a message and prepare it. Um, and then, as usual, the risen Christ decided that there was something else that he wanted to share. So I'd read all the gospel accounts of the Passover celebration, the trial, death, the resurrection, the empty tomb, the woman at the tomb, the angels at the tomb. There was a lot of life in the tomb. Mary and the gardener, the disciple, the race between Peter and John, the empty tomb, the grave clothes, the linen wrapping. And there's just so much from which to draw inspiration from an Easter Sunday morning word. And all of those nuggets of revelation lay just below the surface. But today my message is not drawn from any of those things that I mentioned. Today my message is titled The Emmaus Walk. And of course it's a reference to the Resurrection Sunday, the story contained in Luke 24 and verse 13 to 34. And it's a story of the two disciples walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. But also and just as significantly, it's a reference to our walk. It has truths in it. It has nuggets that we need to mine from God's Word. And so let me provide some background. The name of Emmaus appears only one time in the entire Bible. And one could think that that would give it a degree of insignificance. So it's mentioned as a place where these two disciples are going. But I want to remind you that there are no superfluous words in the Bible and nothing is coincidental or incidental. It's all purposeful, and it's all for our benefit. You see, in 166 BC, 170 years before Christ, Judah Maccabeus fought the Battle of Emmaus, a little-known fact. Judah was under threat of a holocaust, worse than the holocaust of the Second World War. It was a holocaust that would have wiped out Judah as a nation, would have eradicated the people. And Judah led his army to win a great battle against overwhelming odds. And you may say, well, you know, that's just a historic fact. It's, it's great it happened, but 
But I want to relate it to us as Christians because without Judaism, there is no Christianity. Christianity is an outgrowth of Judaism. And so had they been defeated, had Judaism been wiped off the face of the earth, then there would have been another plan that God had. In this particular case, he used Judah Maccabeus. Back to the walk. So two disciples of Jesus, not of the twelve, not of his inner circle, um, but they were followers, the Bible tells us. Um, And they were returning from the Passover celebration in Jerusalem to Emmaus, a walk of some seven miles. We know the name of one was Cleopas. And Jewish tradition uh, suggests that the other may in fact have been his wife. Um, I've read the story many times and I hadn't even concluded that that could be the case. But just a week before on Palm Sunday, they were probably among the multitudes who welcomed Jesus triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. Luke 19 and 38 tells us the people were rejoicing loudly, praising God for all they had been saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Since that time, though, they had seen Jesus arrested, tried, beaten, scourged, insulted, demeaned, crucified, and now finally resurrected. So here they are walking home and Jesus appears walking beside them. It's clear that their conversation was intense and that they were sad. And we're told their eyes were restrained so they didn't recognize him. Now, it amazes me when I was meditating on this story that these two were in such a state. I mean, they'd seen firsthand the ministry of Jesus. They were his disciples. They'd seen the miracles of Jesus. They'd been present personally. And even earlier on that very morning, they had heard the reports of the women at the tomb. They'd heard the reports of the risen Christ. Yet, here they are, walking home, disillusioned, disgruntled, dissatisfied, and it would appear somewhat depressed. It's even more amazing if, as Jewish tradition suggests, Cleopas was in fact the brother of Joseph, Mary's husband. He would have known Jesus his whole life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like (laughs) for Jesus' earthly siblings, James, Judas, etc.? Imagine it. No sin was within him. He couldn't lie, and he could do no wrong. As a parent, this truly was heaven coming to earth. You know, Jesus, who broke the vase? (laughs) Where did you and James go today when I told you to go there? You went... Where? Mm. Who were you with today? Mm. Who was that text from? What are you watching on your phone? You get the idea. And what about James and his other siblings? How would their lives have been? Imagine this. You certainly want, wouldn't want Jesus being party to any of your shenanigans, would you? Or pranks or the things that kids get up to. But maybe that's more about my youth than theirs. Anyway. Even after all of that time knowing Jesus, their faith waned. Their certainty was gone. Their security was shattered. Their future uncertain. Their belief weak to the point of being almost non-existent. I recall a message from Pastor Wayne Cadero at last year's New Zealand and Beyond conference. That reminds me, is anyone here who wants to go to the conference this month but hasn't made the commitment? Anyone who hasn't made the commitment but wants to go? 
Because today I want to tell you that if accommodation is the issue, see Pastor Paul. Maybe it's transport or travel costs, see Pastor Paul. Maybe it's the ticket, see Pastor Tark. He'll tell you he can give you a deal that won't be beaten. Now, if you keep this to yourself, I'm going to carry on, but you've got to promise to keep it to yourself. And here's a heads up. See my beautiful wife. Not only is she much better looking than Pastor Tark, but she would be blessed to be able to provide you with a ticket to this amazing, life-changing event. And frankly, we need as many people as possible to join in the praise and prayer celebration because that's the most powerful way to change this nation, to change its direction, to shift things in both the natural but more importantly in the spiritual realm, to arrest the moral decay of our increasingly secular society and confirm his dominion, to declare his kingship, his sovereignty, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the risen Christ today. Back to that message of Pastor Wayne Cadero's. The message was titled, Sifting Us Unto Greatness. And if you haven't seen it, I suggest you look it up because it's a great message. It's just incredible. And in this message, he explained, uh, there should be a, a slide coming up sometime after that. But in this message, he explained the typical Christian walk. There it is. So it starts at salvation with just a little faith and a lot of zeal, a lot of enthusiasm. As we walk, we slowly grow our faith. We're even more enthusiastic, and life is just great. And then we have a couple of upsets. You know, you come to church, and pastor didn't smile at you. The scones were hard. Well, not our scones, Nana Joy, sorry, not ours. Someone else's scones were hard, but you get the picture. Um, and then we go to the conference, and we grow our faith a little more. And we store some zeal, but then we get passed over as life group leaders, and down we go again. Our kids take up more time with their sport than we anticipated, and so we don't get to the prayer meetings or to church as often. The job's not going great. The enthusiasm wanes. We hear a great message at church, and we get inspired again for a day. The marriage gets strained. We get pressures from all directions. As this up and down, seemingly more down than up, yo-yo walk continues, we eventually get to where our faith and our zeal meet. And Pastor Wayne suggests that at that point, for many, their Christian walk ends. That they don't have the zeal to carry it on. And they certainly don't have the faith to restore their belief. You know, people abandon their faith because it's too hard. It's not meeting their expectations. It's not delivering what was promised. It's not what it was cracked up to be. I thought being a Christian would be easy, and now it's all too time-consuming and too hard. Remember the road to Emmaus. Let's read from Luke 24 and verse 13 to 21. And it says, Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, seven miles away. They talked to each other about all the things that had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And now the chief priests 
and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. I don't know about you, but I can see these two disciples drifting from their faith. They're now weak in their faith. Their belief has fallen away. And their hopes have been shattered by the events of recent days. And in their minds, they're losing their Savior, their Rescuer, and their Redeemer. Remember verse 19? Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. They're losing their hope and future. You know, this verse tells us that they, like so many of their brethren, including professing Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. Instead, these two refer to Jesus as a prophet, a mighty prophet, but nonetheless just a prophet. A prophet like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all prophets, and one could argue almighty in deed and word. The problem here is that despite the miracles that undoubtedly seen firsthand or had heard eyewitness testimony about, despite the teachings of Jesus and their personal association with both him and the 12 disciples, despite being party to the earthly ministry of the Son of God, they were professors of faith and not possessors of faith. The same can be true of us, and dare I say it, I'd go so far as to suggest that this is a significant issue within the church globally. Closer to home, I can tell you that there have been times when for Lorraine and I, our faith has waned. As we've faced challenges and trials, we've been found wanting. We've been professors of faith in Christ and not necessarily possessors of faith in Him. We've decided that we know best. We've got it covered. This is a job for us and not for Him. And just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, we get disillusioned, even disengaged and negative, and at worst, disheartened and disbelieving. Emotions which tie the enemy to us, and he uses them to separate us from God and ultimately for his plans and purposes for us. They don't change. We change and move away from them. The lesson for us here is how you see Jesus determines how you receive from him. If you consider Jesus a great teacher, receive great teachings. A prophet, receive prophecy. A healer, receive healing. The redeemer, receive redemption. The savior, receive salvation. If you make Jesus the Lord of your life, then you will be a child of God inheriting all of the promises contained in his word from the heavenly father. Philippians 4 and verse 19 says, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So how do you see Jesus this morning? Do you have a relationship with him? Is he all of the things that you need him to be and all of the things that he wants to be, more importantly? Verse 21 confirms for us that the two had hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see, Israel was under Roman rule. They were an oppressed people in their own land, And the Old Testament prophets had prophesied a Messiah would come and rescue them and overthrow the Roman rulers. Read Isaiah 53 and 61. The prophecies about our Lord and and Savior Jesus Christ are clear. But now their hopes were in tatters, their dreams destroyed, and their future crucified. In verses 22 to 24, Cleopas tells Jesus, 
of the experiences of the morning. The woman at the tomb, their encounter with angels. Verse 24, which says, And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. That's probably talking about the race between Peter and John. So they raced to the empty tomb. Even with the evidence of his resurrection, they failed to join the dots. They failed to recognize the fulfillment of the prophecies regarding the Messiah because their needs had not been met. Many believe that rescuing Israel was the role of Jesus, the mission, the purpose, and so with his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, they concluded that he was not the Messiah. He was not going to be the one to return Israel to self-rule And so their belief and faith in him ceased. The fact that this story is in the Gospels is actually a testament to God's heart for the lost. Like the parables of the lost sheep, lost coin, and the prodigal son, this story captures the heart of God for the lost, for those hurting, for those who have been trampled by the world in their everyday lives. Cleopas and his companion had left Jerusalem, presumably to go home, and as we read on, we find that The rest of the disciples were gathered in Jerusalem. They were praying. They were meeting together. And I I think personally it would have been reasonable for them to be there with them and being strengthened in their faith, but they'd chosen to leave. Their hopes were shattered, and they were heading home. I was meditating on this part of the story and, and asking why on this most amazing of days that Jesus chose these two, chose these two disciples in this place and this time to spend time with. He was with them for hours. Of all the people he could have been with, Mary, his mother, James and his siblings, Mary Magdalene, maybe he could have been comparing resurrection stories with Lazarus. He could have been anywhere, but he was here. He chose these two. And I realized that this, in fact, demonstrates the nature and the heart of God. This was not an accident. This was not some random act. He didn't just happen to appear. It wasn't some accidental encounter. No, this was an act of God for their benefit and for ours. God's heart is that none should perish. It's possible that Cleopas and his companions were in the throes of drifting away from their faith and were about to abandon their belief in a future through Christ. And then Jesus showed up. It reminds me of the course of the song Through the Fire. And if you don't know it, It'll appear up there, but it goes something like this. He never promised that the cross would not get heavy, that the the hill would not be hard to climb. He never promised a victory without fighting, but he said help would always come in time. So just remember when you're standing in the valley of decision and the adversary says, give in, just hold on, because my God will show up and he'll take you through the fire again. That's the truth. He's never far away. You know, at this point in the story, I I often have a bit of a chuckle, I've got to say. And and I kind of imagine two guys like maybe Ranieta and Richard walking from Kaitaia to Ahipara. And a stranger begins to walk with them, one that they don't recognize. And they tell him how bad they're feeling. They pour out their hearts as much as Ranieta and Richard can pour out their hearts. And then he says something like, oh, you idiots, you're slow, no heart. You don't even believe what was written by the prophets. Wasn't it meant to be this way? Duh. It's kind of like once we're shepherds meets once we're warriors. 
And it always amazes me that they just listened. They were silent and they listened. And at this point, Jesus points to himself. He points to himself in the scriptures and all the prophets had said about the suffering servant and the Messiah. Remember that saying, Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. Jesus makes that a truth. He confirms that truth in this story by himself. And Luke tells us that it was now getting late. The custom of hospitality said that travelers should be invited to share a meal and spend the night. And that's what happened. Verse 30 tells us over the page that it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And at that moment, they recognized him. The New King James Version says their eyes were opened and they knew him. Then he vanished from their sight. I love this version because in the original Greek, the term knew him means so much more than just physical recognition. They didn't just see his face. It speaks of a knowing of all of him, his nature, his heart, his desires, his will and his plans, a recognition of all that Jesus was. Their eyes were open to the reality of the resurrected Christ. Despite the fact that Jesus had already pointed to himself in all the scriptures during their walk together, it wasn't until this moment that the revelation was comprehended. And for us, that moment can be recreated in the act of communion. We'll be taking communion later, and we need to be seeing Jesus just as they saw Jesus for everything that he is, everything that he was, and everything that he will be. Then in verse 32, they reflect on their walk with Jesus as he shared with them and the effect of sharing had on their physical being, their hearts burning as he spoke. It's like they received a rhema word through the scriptures, just as can happen with us sometimes. And in researching the story, I found that Emmaus actually means hot springs. But going further into the Hebrew and finding the root word, the root word of, of Emmaus is actually a word harm, which means hot. And in terms of hot, it's not physical heat. It's about being hot. It's about being passionate. It's about being um, uplifted and thrilled with what you're hearing. It's about being hot for something. And as they, they talked of their hearts burning, you know, just as we can get disillusioned or disheartened when we're going through some trial or other, we too can be reignited with the fire of God through the scriptures, through prayer, and having our relationship with the living Christ rejuvenated. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had one of those Sundays? You know, the one where you're not really in a great space, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Maybe it was a follow-on from Saturday or the week before. And you head off to church, but before you go, you and mum have a few words, have a family moment, uh, a discussion with passion. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Just me? Nah, I can see some smiles. Okay. Or maybe it's just withdrawal and the silent treatment that's been ongoing. Well, maybe it's work or the kids' finances, 101 other things that challenge us and test our faith. And so we head off to church. As per normal, 
One of our wonderful helpers greets us at the door, member of Team Unlimited, with a hi, how are you this morning? How's things going? You know, what have you been up to? How is it? And if you're anything like me, you reply with a not too good. Uh, Just had a major disagreement with the missus. Uh, We're not on the same planet, let alone the same page, so it would be great if we could join in prayer and seek the Lord's input into that situation. Right, not even close. I've never done that. I've never said that. I reply with a polite, yeah, it's all good. Nah, great. Everything's going sweet. And I would predict that if we were to ask everyone in a secret ballot to write down whether they identify with any of those things, we would have a high percentage pass rate. But you know, when we take it on ourselves, when we keep that part of us that we don't necessarily want to share private, we actually deny our brethren the opportunity to be a blessing. We actually deny them the opportunity to bless not just us, but everyone else who might be affected by whatever the circumstance is. And you know, that's one way that you connect with Jesus, how you recognize all that he is and should be in your life. It's how you allow the Holy Spirit to work, to work in your life with the agreement of your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ. For where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst, Matthew 18 and verse 20. You know, George Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as he was known, was quoted as saying, true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It's far deeper than that. It's a spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. And so in the case of these disciples on the road to Emmaus, we see action born of relationship with Jesus. In verse 33 to 36, it says, So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. You see, Cleopas and his companion were spurred into action. It wasn't enough that they'd had experience of a personal relationship with Jesus. It wasn't enough that they knew him intimately. It wasn't that they had all they needed to continue their walk of faith. It's not enough that they were satisfied and reignited and reassured of the lordship of Jesus. They needed to do something. They needed to share their faith and to outwork it. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They they walked or probably more to the point likely ran the seven miles back to where they had come from to tell the others what had happened. And just as their testimony was intended to strengthen their brethren to confirm the risen Christ, so too is yours, so too is mine. Testimony is just personal knowledge until it's shared with others. And then it can be a light in the darkness, a revelation, a strengthening, a confirmation of the goodness and greatness of our God. Holy Spirit-inspired action for God's kingdom purpose. Church, Cleopas and his companion got up, got out, and got going. And that's just what we're called to do. This is not a club. It's not a closed shop. We're called to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Share your faith whenever and wherever. 
You know, the story concludes with the Emmaus faithful sharing with the fearful followers behind locked doors in Jerusalem, reassuring them, comforting them, strengthening them, and then incredibly, supernaturally, Jesus appears in their midst. And the Emmaus story ends with these words of Jesus, peace to you, or the the New Living Translation version says, peace be with you. Philippians 4 and verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And in John 16 and verse 33, Jesus himself said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, the shalom peace that Jesus speaks of is all-encompassing. It covers every part of our lives, and it keeps us at peace no matter what comes against us. Not because we can maintain some kind of everything-will-be-okay persona or I'm all right, Jack, when we walk through the door. It's not that. It's because we have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross, of his resurrection and of our eternal salvation. I'll close with this. You know, there's five simple truths that we can all take from the story of the road to Emmaus. Number one, we will all have tests. We will all have trials and tribulations. Giving your life to Christ doesn't mean that you're free from those things. Giving your life to Christ doesn't mean that you suddenly have an easy walk. In fact, the truth is, it's probably going to be more difficult as you go through your journey. You're going to need to lose some friends. and They're going to need to lose you. But you're going to need to find them. That's kind of an oxymoron. But you get the picture. The walk is not easy, but it's eternal. It's eternal. Point two is no matter where we're at, Jesus is at our side and the Holy Spirit is within us. You know, these two had forsaken Jesus and they were heading home, sure that their relationship with him was over. But he was at their side. And today, no matter where you're at, he's at your side. He's with you. And through his Holy Spirit, he lives within you. And he wants to fulfill the plans and purposes that he has for you. The reality of Jesus in number three is revealed in our overcoming when the test becomes a testimony. It might not come quickly. It might not come the way we expect it. But be assured, overcoming will come. Just as the Bible tells us that he sits as a refiner, taking the dross and looking for the purity in that silver, in that precious metal. You know, the refiner knows when the job's done because his face is reflected in the metal that he's purified. And it's the same with us. The heat will bring out some stuff. But at the end of it, we will reflect our Lord and Savior. And then the test becomes the testimony. When you go through it, you can help others not go through it. Your testimony is not for you. It's for everyone else. And just like Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 2, God told Abraham that he was blessed, but he was blessed to be a blessing to others. 
The same is still true. That's a truth that will reign for all eternity. We're blessed to be a blessing to others. We need to be living our lives, endeavoring to bless others. And that might be as simple as a smile, as a hello, as a have a blessed day. It's not a difficult act. Friendship, fellowship, goodness should pour out. If you're filled to overflowing, then let it pour out. And finally, number five, Pastor Tark often says that we are all full-time preachers. All full-time preachers of the gospel. And so your calling is to share the good news. Not necessarily preaching in the sense of preaching like this, but sharing the good news that Jesus is alive, that Christ lives, that the future is eternal and guaranteed, that we have salvation through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. You know, today is Resurrection Sunday, a day that proclaims the victory of Jesus over sin and death, but a day that also proclaims the love of God for us in that while we were still sinners, he sent his only begotten son to die for us, to take our place, to be the living sacrifice, beaten, whipped, scourged, tortured, to undergo an excruciating, painful death on that cross that he might be raised up on the third day victorious in his glory. He died that we might live, and this eternal life with him is available to each and every one of us. Jesus chose to die for us that we might live in communion with him. So as this message closes, I just ask that you open your hearts, that you spend some time thinking of what Jesus has done, what Jesus will do, and what the Holy Spirit wants to do through each and every one of us. And as we close, let's open our hearts to him as Pastor Paul now leads us in communion.